big dumping in, in Seattle and so forth. And uh, see, I lived in Maryland for like 11 years, and we, we have all four seasons, and so we get snow every year. And so I, I love snow, but after 10, 11 years of shoveling the driveway, you know, not just like little snow, but like, you know, two or three feet of snow, I was just sick of snow. And so when I moved to Seattle, I was so happy. I, I definitely would take the rain over the snow. But now living in Seattle for almost 14 years, and we just don't get enough snow. I just want it to snow, right? I just want it just the whole city just to be blanket, just full of white. Shut the whole city down. There'll be peace on earth, right? <laughs> That's what we should pray for, you know. But I would just love to see that because that just puts me even more so uh, in, in, in the Christmas mood. Uh, Angel's so kind. We went to, uh, she got tickets and we went to the Chris Tomlin, the Christmas tour concert with Matt Redman. And that was, that was just so good. That was just so awesome. And so I, I just want to make sure that uh, for all of you, that as we enter into this Christmas time and this Christmas season, that we're really, again, connecting for the reason for the season, that we're really connecting again with why, uh, why we come to church, um, you know, why Jesus is so important, why Scripture is important to us, that why are people around us so important, why are the things that the works uh, that the church is doing, why are those things so significant? Why is it that our personal relationship with God is the most important and influential relationship that we have? So, you know, when it comes to this uh, idea of, you know, it's Christmas time. Uh, we, of course, have Christmas Day, the day Jesus was born. But then we have Christmas time, what we call Christmas time, because everything that we want to talk about Jesus' birth cannot be just celebrated in one particular day. The birth of Jesus, when God stepped into this world, it happened on a particular time, on a particular, on a particular day, but it ushered in a time, a season, an era, an epoch, of God saying, man, I'm with you. I'm with you all the time. I'm with you at every age. I'm with you no matter how you feel. And so the ancients, they used to distinguish the, the time of day with times, like seasons, with two words. Chronos is chronological time, like chronography, right? You know, like your watch, chronos. And then kairos. Kairos means moments and seasons. That's how they would distinguish time in that particular way. Let me give you an example. Like when a couple gets married and you get an invitation that says the marriage will be at so-and-so date at 5 o'clock, that's chronos time. That's what you look at your watch for. But when it's 5 o'clock that wedding day and the doors open and the bride walks through, right, that's a kairos moment. That time is kairos time. It's kind of like a time when, when time seems to stand still. Uh, another, maybe this way, you know, we, let's say you have 6 o'clock reservations at the Met. Right? That's, and it's 6 o'clock, and that's chronos time. But when you're eating the most amazing steak in the world, that's like worship, right? No, that's like kairos time, okay? That moment where time stands still, this is amazing. Um, final example, okay, maybe this will connect with you. When I was, it was in my 20s, okay, I was in my 20s, and I happened to catch this show on TV, and it was so cheesy that it was so good, I kept watching it, right? And it was called The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, all right? This is my 20s. Maybe you've heard of it, right? What's the best part of the show? Because I know a lot of you grew up on that show. The best part is when they say, let's say it together. It's morphin' time. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's right. All right? It's morphin' time, right? That is a kairos moment. All right? They don't go and say, it, uh, it's, it's time to morph. No, that, that's not how it works. It's, it's morphin' time. And time means nothing in that moment. Time seems to stand still. 
In fact, whenever they would say it's morphin time, they would cut out to this cutscene of them each having to transform. It takes like five minutes to get through that, right? Time stands still. It's like, what's going on? They're changing the uniform. Are the bad guys just waiting around for them to, you know, change? I mean, what, what's the deal here, right? And it's worse when, remember, they would call their zords, right? They would call their zords, and they do another cutscene to their, to their animals. They're, it's like a scene in Africa, and they're running, right, to get to America. I mean, how long is that going to take? You're not going to make it in time, right? See, that's kairos time. It, time seems to stand still. It's what's in the moment is significant. It's the moment that's everything. Time seems to stand still. And that's how the gospel of Matthew begins. It's this Kairos time. He's explaining. He's showing the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You can turn there, but it's up there too. And he describes Christmas time, the birth of Jesus. And he introduces this Kairos moment. It's just so beautiful. Matthew 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says this. This is the genealogy. Now, when you hear genealogy, you're just going to get bored, okay? But if you were Greek, and if you could actually see the word that he's using there, it's actually a word that you're all familiar with. Familiar with. It's Genesis. And Genesis is actually just a transliteration from the Greek. Okay? Beginning. All right? And so he's saying this is the Genesis. And also it should read, ring to your mind. And also it would have brought to the first century, um, of course, their reader's mind. This is also the first book of the Old Testament. Same thing. Genesis. So... Matthew is saying this is a new beginning. This is a new time. This is a kairos moment. Can you hear the kairos? The genesis of Jesus the Messiah. Then he adds these two phrases of who Jesus is. The son of David and the son of Abraham. And again, this is just pregnant and pregnant, pregnant with so much meaning. Just really quickly, the son of David. If you've studied a little bit of the Old Testament, David, God promised that through David, through King David, the Messiah would be born, okay? That he promised him that you would have a son who would, whose throne would be eternal. And then, of course, we know Abraham. He's the patriarch, the father of faith. And God said, it's through your seed, and one of your seed particularly, that all the nations will be blessed. And so in this one sentence, Matthew is declaring this kairos moment, this kairos time saying, here, world, here is your Messiah finally come, and here is your hope, eternal hope, finally come. It's the beginning of a Kairos moment that just supersedes, puts to shame all other Kairos moments. And then you get to verse 2. And then when you get to verse 2, it's kind of like Matthew switches heads for a second. Because, you know, when you look at the genealogy, I mean, just look at that. It's, you know, and if you've ever read a little bit of the Old Testament, um, how many of you skip through genealogies? We just skip through, right? Just admit it, okay? Yeah, we just skip through it, right? I skip through it too. I skip through the genealogy. I'm like, oh, what is this? They're just, they're just people. I have a hard time just looking at that particular passage. All of these names, they just kind of get jumbled in. They're a bit uninteresting, difficult to pronounce. But there, there's a reason, though. There's this other reason I just kind of discovered more recently why I don't like genealogies. And it's for the same reason that I don't like eulogies. Um, not that I hate eulogies, but... You know, when you go to a, a funeral, and, and, and I, I've been to several, when they are reading eulogies, I'm just letting you know, there's just, just something in me. It happens every time. When they start reading the eulogy of a person who's passed away, I just want to stand up, and I just want to shout out, there's more to this person's life, right? 
Because nothing, that one minute they give for eulogy, nothing can encapsulate their relationships, their accomplishments, their influence, their stories, their character. It deserves to be honored so much more than just a one-minute eulogy. That's why when I look at genealogies, genealogies are just insulting, right? Because all you get is a name. All you get, you don't get one minute. All you get is one second for a person or half a second for a person to say your name and you move on. And, and that's how you can easily read this particular genealogy that Matthew launches into, a bunch of uninteresting names, until you get to verse 3. And you get to this name, Tamar. And you're like, wait a minute, if you know a little about the Old Testament, wait, isn't that Tamar, the daughter-in-law, who disguised herself as the prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law, one of the, again, the answers of Jesus, into sleeping with her so she could conceive a child? That's like a scandal, right? It's that Tamar, yeah. And, and wait a minute. This is a, this is a genealogy of Jesus. This is the beginning of Jesus. And so, wait a minute. Uh, Tamar's an, a, an ancestor of Jesus. Wait a minute. She wasn't even Jewish. She was 100% Canaanite. Yeah, it's that Tamar. And then you get to verse, you keep on reading the names, and you get to verse 5, and you get to Rahab. And you're like, wait a minute. Rahab, that sounds really familiar. Isn't that also Rahab? Isn't that the prostitute, Rahab? <laughs> right? Wait, she's, a, she's an ancestor of Jesus? She's the one, wait a minute, she was the one in Jericho, right, that helped the spies, hid them? Wait, that, that Rahab? Wait a minute, wait a minute. She's an ancestor of Jesus? Matthew, why are you even bringing this up? This is stuff we don't talk about. Oh, my God, she's not even Jewish. She's a Jerichoite, right? And... and then, you know, you, you keep reading. You're like, man, what, what's Matthew doing? Then you get to the second part. I mean, why is he bringing up all these really shady characters? Why not bring up, like, Sarah, you know? She was a model of faith, you know, Rachel or Leah. There's other women who, who followed God really well. And then we get to verse 5. <coughs> verse 5 is Ruth. Okay, we all know Ruth. Ruth, phew. Okay, Ruth is awesome. She's this amazing picture of faith and beauty. Although, when I think of Ruth, I mean, I really think she's a great character, Bible character, and, and, and godly and things like that. But she was a bit forward, right? I mean, I think she was even a bit forward for me. Because, I mean, just think of her strategy, right? Her strategy to get her man was, I'm going to wait till he's drunk. And after he's drunk, I'm going to sneak into where he is. I'm going to lay down next to him. And, and after he gets up from his drunken stupor, I'm going to ask him to put part of his cloak to cover me. Yeah, that'll, that'll do it. That'll do it. Okay, that is not a biblical dating strategy, okay? So do not get any, and get any ideas. But that was really forward, right? I'm not going to tell Mia to go, hey, you know, wait till he's drunk and then, you know, right? I mean, she was pretty forward. By the way, Ruth herself, she wasn't even Jewish either. She was a Moabite. And if you do some just like history, like the Israelis and the Moabites, they had some serious, serious um, war issues. Why is he doing this? Then we get to verse 6, okay? Verse 6, where it talks about another woman. By the way, even mentioning woman in Jewish genealogies is rare. If you look at any of the Old Testament genealogies, you're not going to find a woman's name. It's just normal to have all the men's names in here. But Matthew is, is doing something. He's up to something. He's not done yet. We get to verse 6 where there's an anonymous wife. Okay, phew. You know, Matthew. Okay, maybe he's, he's learned his last thing. He's not going to name names. 
He's not going to try to embarrass anyone. He's not going to try to embarrass the Messiah, all right? So there's an anonymous wife and mother are mentioned, okay? No names. Uh, the wife of David. Okay, David had a lot of wives. So, you know, which one are those? Um, who was also the mother of Solomon? Well, that narrows it down. Who was before Uriah's wife? Okay, that's really particular. Now, that's, everyone knows who that is. That's Bathsheba. So much for anonymity, right? Everyone knows her sad story. And I know that, you know, when you talk about an affair, because David had an affair with Bathsheba, and, and he, had Uriah's, uh, he had Uriah basically killed. And it takes two to tango, okay? But when you're in a position of power, like David was, and you use that power to actually murder your rivals, your, I mean, you know, your, your rival, and then take his wife, She's a victim. She's a victim. So you're telling me, like, one of David's ancestors and the God who promised, you know, God promised, you know, David that a line would come through him. Like, that's Jesus's ancestry? Really? That's kind of shady. I mean, you would think God would just choose something a little more highbrow than that. And all of a sudden, this really boring genealogy, it starts reading like TMZ, right? It starts reading like a gossip magazine. Like, this is really interesting, right? Who is this? And by the way, um, I think that Matthew, he brings out the women's names. Not because he's really down on women. But I think that if you were a first century reader, you'd probably read it the same way you do it today. You'd just, it's just a list of names. And we would just go through those things and not think anything of it. But he's bringing out the women's names to bring about this idea of who is the Messiah really. And who was he really for? Is he for the highbrow, or is he really for everyone? Not only that, he not only not wants to bring these out just to, just to shake us up a little bit, but he wants to bring out the women's names so that we would also look at the men's names. Now, I'm not going to go through all the men's names, because that's just way too many, all right? But here's what you need to know, is that in verses 7 through 11 of the names, all right, it's the slow history, the slow decline of Judah, where king after king, with a few exceptions, did not follow God. And they led their country to ultimate ruin. Babylonian captivity, 587 B.C. Why? Because the leaders would not lead. Because the people would not follow. These were the men who were leading. And so it's interesting. It's as if Matthew is, as he's looking at Jesus' genealogy, right? He's studying this. It's, he's intentionally, like he's scouring over the Old Testament let me find the most shocking, the most scandalous, the dirty, messed up ancestors in Jesus' bloodline, and let me put it on paper. And so that thing that Jesus, you know, I, I follow a Jewish carpenter, right? Jesus, he wasn't even Jewish. Jesus wasn't even Jewish. Jesus was a little bit of everything. He was a multi-ethnic, pan-Middle Eastern carpenter. He was a little bit of everything. And in his ancestral line, there was a lot of good, but there was also an equal amount of bad and brokenness and some downright scandals that no one would ever talk about and share about in their genealogy, at least in polite company. Anyone here have a family like that? And what Matthew is telling us about the birth of Jesus in this Kairos moment that he, that he lays out is that Christmas time is God's love and inclusion for all humanity. That's what he's announcing. There's this time, Christmas time, is God's love and inclusion for all humanity. And I'm just 
blown away by the fact that before Jesus is born, before Jesus takes his very first breath in those baby lungs, that God has been setting up this moment for thousands of years. Think about this, right? Before Paul's mission to the Gentiles, before Paul says those amazing words, in the gospel, he says, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, no male or female, barbarian, Scythian, slave or fee. He says, but Christ is in all. Christ is all and in all. Before Paul said any of those amazing words that God was already for the whole world because the DNA of the whole world was going to be in his son. That's amazing. That's amazing. Have you ever felt that God, or have you ever felt that the universe was just against you? You were just having such a bad day. You know, you just felt God was just, just in a bad mood. He had it against you. I want you to know that's not from God. Maybe that's your mind playing tricks on you. Maybe a particular, some bad choices that you made is the result. But God himself is not ever against you. Matthew is really clear. God came for us. God came for you to become one of us because he loves us. And what I love about God's love, it's, it's so strong. It's not weak. A weak love is very fluffy. Hey, let's just, just love one another. Just support one another. Just be okay with each other however you are. Just be loving and supportive. See, when you read this genealogy, front and center of this genealogy is the brokenness and shame of the dark side of what it means to be human. See, you're supposed to look at this genealogy and say, ooh, ee, whoa, not very pretty, right? And, and God's love, and, and sometimes when we look at the world around us, Christmas time, we could say, ooh, ee, you know, there, there's not a lot of hope. But I'm so glad that I believe in a God who looks at the world and could look at us. And sometimes God says, ooh, yeah, that's, that's really bad. But God doesn't just say, ooh, that's really bad and just leave the drama and just depart and say, that's just too bad. Because in my worst moments, I'll look at myself and I'll look like, ooh, that looks pretty bad. There's no hope. God does not look at the world and say, ooh, that's really bad and leave. God looks at the world and says, oh, yeah, that's pretty bad. And God says, I'm coming. I am coming to help. I am coming to save. I am coming to redeem. And our world is filled with great good. But at the same time, our world, it seems like it's filled with equal amounts, if not more, violence that overshadows all the good. People, like we've, we are filled with, controlled by the seven deadly sins of sloth and anger and pride and gluttony, envy, lust, and greed. And these are the things that resided in this particular genealogy, in the men and the women of this genealogy, and they reside in us. But see, that's the thing, is that the genealogy wasn't given there just to be this shameful thing. Look at who you are. It's meant to be, look at who you are, to look at a mirror, but that our brokenness, the humanity's brokenness, is not the intended destiny that God has for us, that God has this really strong love that lifts us out of the pit of sin, that lifts us out of our despair of life, that lifts us out of the depression of whatever might be depressing you, that lifts us out of our crippling brokenness. God doesn't leave us in 
the darkest recesses of our humanity when everything we look at our lives is like, ew, what's going on? But God has come to shine forth that bright, holy light that exposes and wakes us up and helps us to see that in Christ, in Christ, God's intention was always for us not to be stuck in the worst of ourselves, but God's intention was for us to be the best of ourselves. Just, just imagine that for a second, right? Because there's probably a lot of us, we're all thinking, we're all maybe hopefully working on something. We're pursuing God on something, trying to be better at something, whether it's work, whether it's your a virtue, whether it's trying to be more forgiving, more generous, more compassionate. Or think about that, the best version of yourself that you're trying to become for a moment. Imagine the most loving person. Imagine the most loving version of yourself. Imagine being the most patient version of yourself. Imagine being the most generous version of yourself. Imagine being the most virtuous version of yourself, what you are trying to become. Imagine being the most creative, the most inspiring. Yes, you can be inspiring. Imagine being the most inspiring, the most loving version of yourself. Imagine being the most free version of yourself. That's who God is for you. It's Christmas time. That's what this is saying. That's why Jesus comes. That's why Jesus dies on the cross in order to rescue us from our own destruction. Because this genealogy is for real. This genealogy will keep going and going and going, and it's not going to look very good unless, unless there's come someone to change the story, to shape us and to change us and to transform us. It's Christmas time. That means there's hope for salvation for every one of us that transforms the very essence of us that can heal the world for all of us. I want that. I want that. I want to bring up um, a brother, Alan Zhang, who discovered the reality of Christmas time here at SCAC and how God has changed his life. So can you come up, uh, Alan, come up, and can you please welcome Alan up to give his testimony? Good morning. Thank you. Is it working? I think so. All right, so um, praise God for genealogies. I feel like the list of names speaks so much truth even as it is, right? So uh, my name is Alan. I uh, started coming to SCAC in 2009, almost eight years ago. Um, and I came to faith here, actually. I came to faith here, um, actually, up in the Parsonage in Bain Hall. Um, right now, I'm a staff at USC with a college ministry. Are there any Trojans in the house? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think so, but I just wanted to ask. Um, that's okay. Um, we love you anyways. Please keep listening. Um, I grew up here in Beacon Hill in a Buddhist household. My family isn't Christian. Um, and when I was high school, I wanted to do so many different high school things, um, from dating to parties to working my butt off in school. Um, I was essentially looking for love and seeking love and affirmation in so many different ways, all the wrong ways. Um, and um, some would say that I had a forward strategy. Um, in the summer uh, before my junior year, um, I felt unsatisfied with all these things, um, and I decided to 
um, actually, sorry, I was moving like from one dating relationship to the next one, party to the next, uh, one class grade to the next. Um, I could tell, and people could tell, I was looking for something more. Um, one night, my friend Marvin and I were walking around that, uh, Beacon Hill after school, and he could tell, and he was asking me, like, what are you looking for, right? What is it that you're looking for? And I didn't know, and I just said that, I didn't know. Um, I later found out that I ultimately was looking for, um, looking to be seen and heard and loved. Um, in the summer before my junior year, I felt unsatisfied with all these different things, and I decided to say yes to Marvin, actually, when he invited me to come to the Friday Night Fellowship at New Life. And my expectation and my guess was that people would see me and they would say, ooh, ew, like, like <laughs> this guy's bad. Like, there is no hope for him. Um, and I took a risk, and uh, I felt so welcomed. And at the same time, I also had this fear, too, that God would say the same thing. Like, wow, this guy is so bad. There is no hope for him. Um, it was here at SCAC that I began to hear God calling me to be in his kingdom um, and calling me to go and bring other people, too. God had my attention, and I started seeking after Jesus. Um, and in the spring of my junior year in high school, I decided to follow Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Um, when I moved to L.A. for Occidental College, um, it was in this group called InterVarsity uh, that welcomed me. Um, it was with InterVarsity that I started to invite other people to come and check out Jesus with me. Um, I loved asking folks if people had any sort of spiritual background. Um, I'd ask anyone I got to know. Some of them were Christians, and some of them had no background in Christianity or faith. Um, I learned how to study scripture and lead Bible studies. Um, and we had some of these uh, Bible studies for non-Christians called God Investigation Groups, um, or GIGS for short. And um, over the next four years at Occidental College, I saw friends encounter Jesus and make decisions of faith, too. Um, at Oxy, I studied kinesiology and human physiology. Um, and I was preparing, actually, to go and apply for graduate school and get a doctorate in physical therapy. Uh, but in my senior year, I felt God saying to leave that and to become a missionary for college students. Um, a big part of it was that I saw that God was uh, showing me the same thing I learned at SEAC. Um, college students came to school looking for significance, looking, for, uh, looking to make sense of the world in their life. Um, and most of them graduate without having found anything, an answer to that. And I felt God was saying um, he wanted to show them hope and he wanted to, sh to invite them to be in his kingdom um, and to live in it, the kingdom that has already come. Uh, for two years after uh, I graduated, I decided to do part-time ministry with um, InterVarsity, and right now I actually made a recommitment to do full-time ministry for five more years. Um, so like I said, I am on staff with InterVarsity. I'm now at USC. Um, what we do is that we help students, um, we disciple students in their walks with God um, and reach the lost. Um, we do this with one-on-one -on -one discipleship meetings, uh, large group fellowship meetings, um, small groups, leadership training, conferences, and mission trips. Um, at USC, where there are over 19,000 undergraduate students, our vision is that the whole entire campus would uh, encounter Jesus, that they would love radically, and that they would change the world. Um, and in this past year, God's been doing some amazing things, and I actually want to give some of these highlights of this year. Um, 
in this semester alone, we've seen 60 students come to faith. Um, that's like in, in 60 plus years of InterVarsity's history at USC, we've never seen that many before. Um, like last school year, we've seen 70, and this semester we've seen 60. It's like amazing. Um, in the last six years, we've seen a group of 60 students now grow to over 200. Um, and right now we have 25 small groups that are doing outreach, um, reaching the dorms and apartments, um, ethnic specific groups, international students, and more. Um, and this semester we launched uh, new outreaches for art students and music students and business students. Um, one of my favorite stories of this year is of this uh, woman, her name is Allison. She is a freshman international student from uh, China, and she came and she wasn't a believer, and um, she had no kind of knowledge of Jesus. But our friend invited her to come to our fellowship meeting, and she got connected. Um, we had our fall conference at the end of September, and she came, um, and she was seeking the Lord. She was wanting to search for God. And during one of our, the prayer time, she had pain in her lower back. And um, someone prayed for her, and her pain went from a nine to a one. Uh, the prayer person asked her if she was following Jesus, and she said no. Um, and then she asked, um, well, do you want to become a Christian? And she said, yes. Uh, for the other student leaders who were at the conference, uh, there was so much excitement about this. Like, they, their faith um, kind of increased as I saw someone else make a decision of faith. And this happened uh, throughout this whole semester with other uh, 59 students who came to faith. Um, we found that they've been incredible gifts to the fellowship. Um, there has been this study, uh, a few studies actually, looking at this phenomenon called the tipping point. Uh, that describes a movement of change that happens, and at a certain threshold, this movement of change becomes unstoppable. And so for, certain, uh, for neighborhoods, um, neighborhoods stay like, largely the same, um, uh, even with people moving in. Um, but when we see that, um, when we see groups of people move in and it reaches uh, between 20, uh, 5 to 25 percent, the whole neighborhood shifts and undergoes rapid, significant change. Um, I think you might see that in Seattle, actually, uh, right now. Uh, Tim Keller actually writes about this. And he says that in prisons, when prison inmates become uh, Jesus followers and they reach about 10%, the very culture of the life in the prison changes very rapidly. People become open to hearing stories of Jesus. Uh, the violence drops dramatically. Um, imagine the impact and the change that USC would experience if... Um, if 5 to 10% encounter Jesus and we're following Jesus. That's something that I think about. I also think about the number because it's gigantic. That's around 950 to 1,900 students. But that is something I dream about with USC. Um, I love working with college students. Um, I know USC produces some of the great leaders of the world. Um, I think about what would happen if these type of leaders graduated USC as followers of Jesus. Imagine the impact on the cities and the nations and the world um, where college students were transformed by God and they went out, entering into the media world, into medicine, into business, or became missionaries. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much, Alan. Um, 
I, I just love your, your testimony. I love Alan's uh, story. Uh, I love where God has, has led him. And um, it, it, it's just amazing. We're, we're so proud of you as well, just because we, we know what it takes to, to make those decisions, have those hard conversations with parents and things like that. I'm, I'm not going to do my job. I'm going <laughs> to go into this other full-time ministry thing. And so, um, uh, church, there's something, there's an insert here, and uh, has a little bit more about Alan. And there are different ways that you can, we can continue to support him. And so in all the ways that you, church, have invested, that you invest in our youth, you know, um, children's, junior high, high school, um, uh, um, college, and, and, and so forth. Um, I just want to ask you again, in this season of, uh, of just blessing and generosity, that you would also continue to invest very specifically in, in one of our own, uh, in Allen. And there's different ways that you can um, invest in, in his life and in his ministry, the work that God is doing. Just amazing, amazing work. We want to continue to support our brothers and sisters that this is their home church. And so you can take a look at that and see how God may lead you. Um, and then you can drop this little thing. If you fill it out, you can drop it off either in the offering box or I'm going to have Alan meet me out front. And as we shake hands and, and we exit the door, you can give that to him personally. But again, we'll just love just, again, the way that we invest and the way that we're sharing the gospel. Um, I would ask you to take one more step and, and invest very specifically uh, in, in one of our own. All right. Amen. Amen. Um, going back now, Christmas time, um, this 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 particular season, right? It, it's that's what it does. That, that Alan's such a great example. That's why I had to have him share today because it, it radically changes us. It, it radically shifts us from like the party on earth mentality to the party of the kingdom of God mentality. Amen. I mean, that, that's what it does. It, it shifts us. There's this greater joy that we're all being invited into. God is continually reaching us. And so this genealogy now, it, it stops with, with Mary, right? And it's not so much that God is preparing all generations just to make Jesus known in Mary's life, but that God, that he's working in all generations. He's working in all generations, in all lives, so that Christ might be known. And when you look at these characters, right, in this particular genealogy, all these irregular characters, some great, some not so great, some average, all right, they're just like us. They're people just like us in every generation. And they prepare the way. They're preparing the way for Mary's story. And God's going to come to us just like he did with Mary. It's not going to make you pregnant. Don't worry. But God is working through time and through history, through generation after generation. And his desire is to reach every single one of us like he reached Alan, like he's reached out to me, like he's reached out to you. Just that's why you're here. Your life isn't random. The Christmas is tell the story. Tell, your life isn't random. Maybe your parents said, oh, you were a mistake. You were child number three. You weren't supposed to happen, all right? Parents make mistakes, right? But God doesn't make mistakes. He's been pursuing you even through the generations. I was, um, I've tried to do a little bit of genealogy study, like, on my own family. And for, for some reason, my parents, I've asked them questions, they will not share with me really anything. I, I never knew my grandparents on, on either side. I've tried to ask questions, and they just don't share with me stuff about my grandparents or ancestors. I don't know if it's they don't want to because it's an Asian thing, or it's because they'd rather not. I don't know. I have no idea. 
But I remember one time my mom was telling me a little bit about uh, my granddad. And, and I had heard that my grandfather had passed away. And um, a little bit later, you know, there, there was a funeral. She went back to Taiwan for her funeral. Again, I don't, I don't know, you know, that much. Um, but, uh, and then she was saying, at the funeral, like what he had requested beforehand is that he, that we, at one of the songs he requested was the old rugged cross. And I was like, what? Can you go back? Like, <laughs> what? Because <laughs> I thought I was the only Christian in my family because my parents are Buddhist. And again, we never, you know, talked about the, these type of things. And so apparently not, right? Apparently not. I, I was the only, you know, there was another Christian in my family. And kind of how it spoke to me in that particular moment when she told me that my, my grandfather was a Christian or that, you know, he had some type of faith or he, he loved that his favorite hymn, the old rugged cross. What really had this overwhelming effect on me is that when I came to college and, and came to Christ in college, kind of like um, close to how Alan, I came in during that transition time uh, between like hymns and, and contemporary music. So I only learned like a few hymns. I only knew like two or three hymns. That's it. You know what my favorite hymn was? It was the old rugged cross. That was like my favorite hymn. And in that moment, when my parents, my mom told me that that was his favorite song, I was like, God, I could just see, I could just sense, I could just feel the love of God for my ancestors, the love of God for my great, 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 whatever grandparents, for my grandfather, for my, my parents, my, God's great love for my parents who are still Buddhist, and then God's great love to reach down to me. God's been with my ancestors. God's been with my generation before me for a long, 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 long time. Going all the way, all the way back. And that's God's love for you. For all of your ancestors, for all your generations, before, 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 all of that love, and then right down to you. To you. Where you are. Where you are. Christmas time is God's grand declaration that I have come for you. It's God's grand shout out. I have come for you. And when you believe in Jesus and you receive his forgiveness and his humility and his love, when you receive his compassion and understanding and grace that heals you, you are changed. You are changed. It's, it's morphin' time. It's Christmas time. It's change time. And that's why some of you are here. A lot of you come here because you're, you're regulars. But there are some of you that don't come here that regularly or you just started coming. And you could probably look at your life and say, it feels really random that I'm even here today. Because you know deep down that it's weird how God, you know that God must have orchestrated things, orchestrated certain conversations, orchestrated certain people that you would meet, random encounters that brought you here, that have had you coming here each Sunday because you want to listen, you want to hear, you want to know more, you want to grab on to this person, Jesus. So today, this time, it is 11.04 p.m., a.m. P.a.m., again, 11.04 a.m. That's what time it is. But in your heart, you know it's Kairos time. 
in your heart, you know the reason you're here is because it's Christmas time. Have this moment to be your Christmas moment to receive the gift of Jesus, the gift of God's Son to heal your heart. So will you bow your heads with me? And I just want to lead you in a prayer for those that want to ask Jesus to be the Lord of their life, to forgive them of their sins, to come and invade the deepest recesses of their heart and humanity so that they and so that we all might be changed into the image more and more of Jesus. And here's the thing, guys. One day, for every single one of us, no one escapes this. One day, your name will be printed on a piece of paper just like these patriarchs, and your name will be printed in black and white text. It's called an obituary. It's called an eulogy, whatever it is. And one day, your name and your life story, it's going to be really insulting because it's going to read like a one-minute eulogy. That's it. Or it's going to be in a genealogy that your, your great-great-grandchild does for a school project. You're just going to be a blip on the screen. No one will have a clue who you are. But none of that matters. What matters is the decisions that you make right now in your life. The decisions you make now to follow Jesus with all that you've got. The decision you make right now, that life that you imagine the best version of yourself, it's to throw everything you've got into that, saying, Jesus, come into my life. God, I want to be the best version of myself. And I can't do it because all the sins are just constantly controlling me. I need a Savior to deliver me from what controls me. And God, you have come to give me the greatest gift that no one else could ever give, and I can't give myself. I can't buy it myself. I can't work hard enough myself. I can't be that good. Thank you for giving me the greatest gift. And so it doesn't matter that everyone will forget your name. What matters is receiving the name of Jesus in this moment and living the life in your generation, in your generation, to make an impact for the generations then to also come. Father, I just want to pray, Father, for those and, and lead those in a prayer who want to receive Christ. And you just say this, Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus as the greatest gift that has ever been known. And I receive your son, thankfully, gratefully, that you would forgive me of all the, the messed up ways that I think, all the party ways or whatever it might be. Please forgive me for all the ways that I've put you at an arm's distance. And in this moment, with full heartedness, I receive you. I ask you to come into my life and to be the Lord, my Savior, my God, my King, my Director, my CEO, my boss, whatever, whatever language you want to use. I want you to direct my life because you are life itself. Thank you for the gift of your son Jesus who would die for me. For me. I can't believe it. That you would die for me so that I might have and live into the life that you have for me, that you imagine for me the best version of myself every single day. And Lord, I know I'm talking about me a lot, but it begins with me and I need your love. I need to be healed every day of my own brokenness and sin. But I also make a declaration that this life that I live is not just about me. 
It's about my friends. It's about my family. It's about others that are lost. It's about the poor. It's about the brokenness that we see in the whole world. That you would use me to impact a college campus. That you would use me to impact my school. You would use me to impact my place that I work, where it's Microsoft or T-Mobile or Nordstrom's or Google, whatever it might be. You would use me to impact my family so that in my generation and in generations to come, that people will be filled with the light and the love and the triumph of Jesus in their lives. Thank you, God. You are such a good, good God, a good, good Father, a good, good Savior. We receive all these things. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's all stand. Let's sing together.